T-minus 10, 9, ignition sequence starts. Coming to you from a small undisclosed outpost somewhere in Radioland, it's Because I Said So. Parenting advice with love and leadership from the nation's leading parenting expert, syndicated columnist, author, conference speaker, and the only psychologist to point out that psychology has caused more problems than it has solved for American parents. John Rosemond. People like this are a menace to decent society. Call in now about anything from toddlers to teens, even your 20-something toddlers who refuse to stop sucking on the pacifier of your standard of living. Let's not talk about it in front of the boy. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. From American Family Radio Network, here's your host, John Rosemond. Hi there, and welcome to Because I Said So, a parenting program that approaches the uh, issue of raising children from a traditional biblical point of view. I'm John Rosemond, uh, your host. I'm a psychologist who doesn't believe in psychology, and I'm a author of about, I don't know, 20 books, depending on how you count reissues and stuff like that. Syndicated newspaper columnist, my column may be in your area. Check your local newspaper. If you don't get it in your local newspaper, go to my website, www.johnrosemond.com. It's always posted every Tuesday. And um, welcome to the show. Uh, we'll take your calls in a few minutes. But first, I want to talk about uh, the issue of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I've written an entire book on this subject with a nationally known pediatrician from High Point, North Carolina. He's a behavioral developmental pediatrician. He's actually moved his practice to Greensboro, North Carolina. His name is DuBose, a wonderful old Southern name. Ravenel, another wonderful old South Carolina Southern name. And um, in this book, Dr. Ravenel and I, it's called The Diseasing of America's Children, uh, published by Thomas Nelson, quite reputable Christian publisher, The Diseasing of America's Children. We basically expose the fact that there is no good science. And mind you now, Dr. Ravenel is a highly respected pediatrician. He has taught in medical school at the University of North Carolina. He has been in private practice for many years. The guy's got impeccable credentials. We maintain there is no good science behind this diagnosis at all. And th this is a story that just illustrates that. Um, a mother, several uh, months ago, half a year ago, asked me a question about her son who was having great difficulty cutting the mustard at a private school in a major southeastern city. And a little more than two weeks into the school year, the boy's third grade teacher had recommended that he be tested for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Now, this is a child who's been doing okay in the school. Mom subsequently discovered that by grade five, and this is going to be mind-blowing, but I need to tell you before I share the statistic with you, this is not unusual in America's private schools these days. This seems to be rampant, epidemic in America's private schools. Not the diagnosis, but the diagnosing is what's epidemic. She discovered that by grade five, 
65% of the kids in that school had been diagnosed with ADHD and were on medication. 65%? This is genetic, supposedly? Excuse me, where'd these genes come from? In my response to the mother, I referred to the school as a den of diagnosis. Two out of three fifth-grade children diagnosed with ADHD strongly suggests something is not right in the relationship between the school and the professional or professionals to whom they are referring these children. Concerning testing for ADHD... I pointed out to this mother that the diagnostic criteria in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual do not even include one item that requires the administration of tests. There is no test-based criteria listed under this diagnosis in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Testing might facilitate the development of a treatment plan, but it is not necessary in order to make the diagnosis. And I wrote uh, to this mother, she, she and I were communicating by email, this situation speaks of a school that has less than the best interests of children in mind. It is definitely easier to teach a group of kids who are medicated than a group of kids who are doing a normal amount of the things normal kids do, including squirming. Mom, without my advice... She took the bull by the horns and she moved her child out of that school into a public school. Eight weeks later, she sent me a follow-up report, and here's what she writes. Quote, I moved my son to our local public school, and he's just received his first report card. It was perfect. All A's in every academic category and satisfactory in every behavioral category even in neatness. This is the same child who, at the private school, got consistently bad report cards for his behavior. For the first time in his life, he says he loves school, came home last week nearly floating in his enthusiasm and pride because his teacher had cited him as a role model to other children for his dedication to his work and his behavior in class. Needless to say, this is a far cry from his experience at the private school, expensive private school, highly expensive, end quote. She goes on to attribute the change to the fact that for the first time in over four years, her son is in, his, in an atmosphere which challenges him and where behavioral boundaries are clear and enforced, which was not the case in the former setting. But the most fascinating part comes next. She writes... You may also be interested to know that prior to writing you to ask you about the testing, I had gone ahead and had my son tested by a well-regarded psychological firm here in our hometown. I was outraged with her recommendations, which were that my son be given medication and that he should be placed in a remedial school for ADHD children. Folks, these are all people scratching each other's backs. The school scratching the psychologist's back by referring children. The psychologist scratching the school's back by referring children. Anyway, back to the mother. All the tests were, in my opinion, geared to arrive at a diagnosis of ADHD. That mother's very perceptive, and that's what came up. I was so angry at the, that the doctors waived their $1,500 fee I think, out of concern that I would litigate. Fancy that. A 10-year-old is diagnosed with ADHD. His parents object. 
And so they move him to another school, and just like that, his ADHD is cured. The question remains, did he have ADHD or not? I say no. I say there is no such thing when the people who are pushing this diagnosis can come up with objective criteria that can be verified medically and scientifically. I will accept it. This diagnosis has been around for more than 30 years. No one has ever been able to do that. In my estimation, this diagnosis is as bogus a diagnosis, but it is the most money-producing diagnosis the mental health professions have ever come up with. A story of this sort raises a lot of questions. The scary thing is that this little guy's tale is by no means unique. Add in the fact that not many parents will go the distance this mother went to challenge what a school and psychologists were saying about her son, and you end up with a major national scandal. I am frequently asked if I believe in ADHD, and my answer is, what is there to believe? I'm John Roseman. The show is Because I Said So. We are a parenting show. That's what they call it these days. They don't call it raising children anymore. The show exists to try and resurrect traditional, biblically-based parenting in America. And I hope I'm succeeding. You can call us at 404-419-6499. 404-419-6499. We'll be back in a moment right after this break. Welcome back to the show. The show is called Because I Said So. It's the only radio program in America that's devoted exclusively, entirely, without interruption, to the subject of parenting or child rearing, as I actually prefer to call it. I'm your host, John Roseman. You can find out more about me by going to my website at John Rosemond. That's J-O-H-N-R-O-S-E-M-O-N-D dot com. Welcome back to the show. We've got a caller on the line with a question. It's Don from Sewanee, Georgia. Don, welcome to the show. How can I help you, sir? Hi, John. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to uh, speak with you. Oh, thank you. Um, we have, we have, I've read some of your material, and um, we are faced with a challenge. I know that you tend to group uh, parenting into three uh, time categories, if you will, the, the early nurturing where they can't do for themselves, um, up until two or three, and then the um, the uh, discipline chores uh, phase until approximately age 13, 14, and then the mentoring phase after that. That's correct. Um, we have three daughters who um, fall into the second category and the final category, and um, we're challenged with with treating one differently than the other, and we frequently find ourselves using all three phases on all three girls at various times. Um, what is what is your suggestion in that kind of scenario? I know, as you as your introduction said, because I said so, that's that should be our fallback. But in reality, we we have challenges with that. And and taking a specific example, um, electronic um, devices, uh, social media, etc., trying to keep them balanced in, in their exposure to those types of things, given the different age ranges that we're dealing with. 
Well, Don, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, what what you're referring to um, is my concept of the seasons of parenting. And uh, season one is from birth to approximately age two. It's the it's the season of service because that's what you're doing during season one with a toddler, an infant, and a toddler. And then you go through a transitional year between the second and third birthdays, during which you are really redefining your role to your child. You are moving out of a state of primary service into a primary state of leadership and authority. And thus I call season two, which begins around the third birthday and uh, ends around age 13, traditionally, uh, the season of leadership and authority, the season of discipline or the decade of discipline, during which your primary objective is to um, disciple your child, to uh, transform the antisocial toddler, uh, and the toddler is a factory of antisocial behavior, into a prosocial human being who exhibits three characteristics, respect for authority, a willingness uh, to uh, accept responsibility from authority figures, and uh, um, a, uh, a loyalty to family values. Um, and then you move into around age 13, and this is very traditional. Uh, around age 13, in many, many traditional cultures around the world, the, 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 most, uh, the culture that we Americans are most familiar with in this regard is, is Jewish culture. Around age 13, Rituals were held in traditional cultures that move parent and child into season three, which I refer to as the season of mentoring, during which it is your job to help your child develop the skills, social, uh, uh, vocational, whatever, that he or she is going to need domestic to successfully emancipate as early as possible, which is in everyone's best interests, including the child's. So, Don, your question is, you've got three children, 18 daughters, 18, 15, and 12. The two older children are in season three, the season of mentoring. The 12-year-old is right on the cusp of season three. And uh, help me wrap my head around your specific question. It, it pertains to electronics. Is that Am I understanding you correctly? I use that as an example. Um, it doesn't necessarily uh, lend itself to those three seasons, but it would seem you would treat treat it differently depending on what season they were in. Um, that was just an example. But I guess my, my ultimate question is, if we've done a poor job of, of keeping the three seasons distinct, and sometimes even with the 18-year-old, we revert back to season one, um, how do you, how do you go about correcting that, or is it at, at age eighteen? Is it too late at that point? Um, if you haven't done a good job of, of distinctly moving from season one to two, and okay, two to it, three. It, it is not too late to correct your own behavior. Now, there are two aspects to this. Is it too late to influence the child and the trajectory of his or her life in a positive way? Is it is it too late to correct that trajectory? That's the first aspect of the question. The second aspect is, is it too late for us as the child's parents to correct our parenting behavior? The answer to the second question, which I will answer first, 
is no, it is never too late for you to correct your own parenting behavior, and you should do so if you recognize that your parenting behavior has not been uh, completely functional, has not been completely effective, then uh, change your parenting. And by the way, what Don is referring to for our listeners' benefit is uh, laid out very extensively and, and very explicitly in a book of mine called Parenting by the Book, the book referring to Scripture and uh, the the scripture passage that I use to key this particular part of the book is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. There's a time for everything and a season to every purpose under heaven. And if you notice, the the verse is all-inclusive. There's a time for everything, an appointed time for the doing of everything, of anything, and a season to every single purpose under heaven. So what that means is that just as there are seasons to the raising of crops or the raising of uh, livestock, there are seasons to the raising of children as well. And if you are a student of the history of parenting in Western civilization, as I happen to be, then it's very easy to figure out what the seasons of parenting are. And again, I lay those out in Parenting by the Book. But the second question Uh, Is it too late to alter in a positive way the trajectory of an 18-year-old's life by changing your own parenting behavior? The answer to that is, I don't know. All bets are off by the time you reach season three. Now, if you're in season two and you realize, as many parents do, that you really have never made the... If you, in other words, if you're chronologically in season two, say with a seven-year-old, and you realize that you n- never really made the transition between season one and season two effectively, that you are still primarily serving rather than imparting leadership and authority to a seven-year-old, it's very easy to correct that. Uh, you just shift into season two. And I talk about how to do that in the book, Parenting by the Book. But if you are in season three and you find yourself, in other words, chronologically, and you find yourself, you realize that you are still serving this child. This child is still the center of attention in your family. Uh, This child uh, defines to significant degree the emotional climate in the family. Um, it, it is possible to shift into season three when you are chronologically in season three. I hope I'm making this perfectly clear. And the book that I have written to guide parents in doing that is a book called Teen Proofing. But Don, let, let me ask you this. Um, you know, specifically, give me give me a specific issue here that I can wrap my head around. You've said electronics. I'm not a, a a guy who believes uh, that children should be exposed very much to electronics at all until uh, uh, age 12 or 13. That is consistent with the research, research that was done by uh, Jean Piaget, the most famous developmental psychologist of all time. It is also consistent with current research done by people like uh, Jane Healy, research psychologist at the University of California, who has said that children should not be exposed to any electronic screens, television, video games, computers, cell phones, iPads, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until age 10. I say 
age 12 or 13. Uh, we're quibbling here about numbers, but help me uh, help me wrap my head around something specific here, Don. Okay. Well, specifically with respect to, um, to the electronics in, in our area of the world, the country, um, they're required for, for school starting in grammar school, elementary school. Um, but we've done, I think, a pretty good job of limiting it in terms of ownership of electronics until until the age of 13. It's kind of a rite of passage in our house that you get your mobile phone when you turn 13. So we've we've tried to do that. But we find, and let me preface kind of what, what I, everything I've said is we're fortunate in the fact that our three daughters all, for the most part, have straight A's in school, have done that on their own because I've read your your information about, you know, parent parents doing homework for their child or, or you know, not allowing their children to, to be successful in school on their own. So we've done that, and, and they've done very well at it. Um, but our challenge is in the home. Um, it's, it's almost like there's two different children. There's a, an outside-the-house child who's very respectful, um, uh, has, has gotten a lot of accolades, et cetera. And then in the home, um, it's almost like it's a different person. There's there's not a lot of respect, responsibility, and loyalty. And I take a lot of the responsibility myself and my, All right, well, and my wife from the standpoint of we are still in a serving mode a lot of times. It's it's almost like, you know, their happiness is our most important responsibility. Okay, well, let me, let me cut to the chase and, here because, you, you know, the, the, the more you talk, and I, I don't mean this as, a, a, as a, a, a negative comment, but the more you talk, the more issues you're bringing up, and we've got about a minute left in this segment. So, you know, that. uh, that's okay. That. It's all right, Don, but I'm going to try and collapse this answer uh, to, uh, to okay. about a minute here. Uh, number one, electronics. If, um, you know, I'm a realist. If schools are demanding this, then uh, I don't see that you've got much choice. But then, other than to accede to the school's demands and to allow your children to to use electronics for academic purposes, uh, beyond that, I would be uh, where recreational use is concerned. I would be very, very conservative with children beyond age 12. I would allow it beyond age 12, but very conservatively. Secondly, if other people say that your children are well-behaved, respectful, if, if there's nothing but praise, then, hey, you and your wife are doing something right. Don, we've got to end this segment. Thanks for your question. The show is called Because I Said So. We'll be back in a minute. American Family Radio Network, it's Because I Said So. Now once again, here's your host, John Roseman. Welcome back to the show. The show is called Because I Said So. I'm your host, John Roseman, psychologist, author, public speaker, syndicated newspaper columnist. Our phone number, if you'd like to join the show, 404-419-6499. I'll say it again, 404 404- Four one nine six four nine nine. We've got a caller on the line. It's uh, Jennifer from Pennsylvania. Jennifer, welcome to the show, and uh, tell me how I can be of service to you. Hi. Uh, thank you so much. I basically have created a monster with my thirteen-year-old, and I take full credit for the mistakes that I made. I. 
I did everything wrong when he was young as far as coddling and hovering and he was the center of the universe. You know, he um, could do no wrong. I helped I did everything wrong. Helped him with homework, you know. I don't think he ever failed at a young age. And as he got older, I come to realize what terrible mistakes I've made. And over the years, I've tried to um, curb some of the damage that I've done. Um, don't get me wrong, he's, he's respectful outside of the home. He gets good grades. He's good in sports. But there's other things that I feel are more important for him to be a better person. He's self-centered. Um, he compulsively lies. He, he bullies. Um, there is just so many things going on now that I feel that I don't know where to start to make him a better person now. Okay. Well, l- let's, uh, let's uh, focus on one issue and one issue only, okay, because I'm afraid that's all we're probably going to have time for. But um, mm-hmm. let me go back to something that you said that I felt was very interesting, and that is that he's doing fine academically, he's doing fine in sports, uh, other people have no problem with him, his teachers have no problem with him. Am I interpreting that correctly? Yes, um as far as grades, you know, um, that's fine. You know, um, unfortunately, when he doesn't do well, it's everybody else's fault. He doesn't take ownership for his mistakes when he does make them in school. So, you know, teacher hates him or, you know, it's it goes to that. But outside, yeah, um, grandparents, relatives, teachers, you know. Okay, well, if the only – let me say this, Jennifer, and, I, and I've said this time and time again to people. If, if uh, the only problems are problems in the home, if no one else is really having any serious problems with a child, and especially a child this age, a 13-year-old, uh, then you're doing something right. Let's uh-huh. get that very straight. Let's get that clear. You are not a total failure. I think you're feeling like a total failure. But definitely, <laughs> in fact, the evidence is overwhelming that you have done a good job. Now, uh. you may have been a world-class enabler for the first 13 years of this child's life, but you've also uh, been able to effectively uh, communicate, transmit uh, essential social values to this child. Otherwise, he would be a major problem outside the home. Can you accept that? Yes, I can accept that. Okay, so take a burden off yourself. for the. You know, that's the first thing I want you to do, is that you're feeling like a complete 100% failure when, in fact, the problems are pretty well isolated to your relationship with him and his relationship with other family members. Am I correct about that? Yeah, his younger sister um, and me, yes. Okay, so the bullying that you mentioned earlier, who is he bullying? Oh, his sister. Okay, so he's not bullying children at school. He's not bullying kids in the neighborhood. He's bullying his younger sister. Um, yeah, and he, um, when he's around kids his own age, though, he doesn't get along with them, so he really doesn't have many friends. He seems to get along with younger kids, and mm, I've seen him at the pool where he's kind of not a bully, but kind of bossy. Okay, he's controlling with younger children. He can't, he can't exercise control over children his own age, other boys, 13-year-old boys, are not going to allow him to do that. And so what he chooses to do 
because of the strong need on his part to control relationships, uh, what he chooses to do uh, where peer relations are concerned is to uh, relate or or play with and, and be more involved with younger children. Yes. Whom he can control. Who will yes. accept who will accept his we'll call it authority. Oh my goodness, yes. Okay. All right. So uh again, the you know in and of itself this is not an issue at at this point in time. How young are these children, Jennifer? They could be well, uh, his sister, my daughter is ten. Um but it, it can be just children a year or two younger than him. Okay. It isn't overwhelming like a six-year-old or something that he's, okay. you know, it's nothing like that. But Okay, well, let me say this. A 13-year-old boy uh, just entering adolescence who prefers to play with, relate to children one or two years younger than himself, in my estimation, this is not a cause for major concern. Um, and, and I would take that burden off yourself as well. Mm-hmm. The fact that he can exercise more control in relationships with children younger than himself, and therefore he gravitates to those relationships rather than relationships with children his own age, I wouldn't be concerned about that either. Now, so we've focused this, the, the problem, to the family, okay? Yes. All right. Are, are you feeling less burdened as I'm talking to you? Yes. Okay, good, good, because that's my whole purpose here is to take, you know, burdens off your shoulder. Here's what happens. You know, today's mom begins to feel like a failure and she begins to uh, think apocalyptically is, is the way I describe it. It's suddenly everything about this child is wrong and everything about her parenting is wrong. And one of my purposes here, not only with you, but with our mothers who can relate to this, who are in our listening audience, is to say, look, when you really add things up, most of you have done a fairly good job. And there isn't a whole lot of stuff that you need to do to set the things that are wrong to set them right. So the first thing that I would do is deal with uh uh, you know, one of the, identify one of the issues in the family, his disrespect, disobedience, whatever it may be, the bullying of his younger sister. Focus on one problem and one problem only within the family. Uh, now, I'm going to say this, uh, and it sounds uh, like self-promotion, but the book that I would recommend to you in this regard is The Well-Behaved Child, Discipline That Really Works, there are in this book uh, a plethora, big word, of disciplinary methods and techniques and strategies that you can apply even to a child of this age um, concerning various problem behavior situations. <clears throat> so what is the, uh, in the home, what is the number one problem in your estimation? Um. In the home, I would have to say it is his inability to listen to me and follow instruction in the home, things that he needs to do. It's uh, I'm completely, um, almost like I feel like I'm a joke, you know, like, yeah, mom told me to do this, but I'm just going to sit here and not listen. It's, it's 
pretty much like that. All right, and his, so, his, his would def- that be considered yeah. disrespectful? No, it's disrespectful. It's disobedient. It's defiant. Absolutely, it's all those things. Um, what I would probably recommend to you uh, is that you use a technique that I call three strikes, you're out." First thing that you do is you cleanse his room of everything. You do this while he's at school uh, or or when he's not in the home. He's at somebody else's house, uh, grandparents' house, whatever. And while he is outside the home, you and your husband go into his room and basically strip his room of what I call entertainment value Mm -hmm. so that when he comes home, there is nothing in his room that he can play with or entertain himself with. There's just a bed, chest of drawers, essential clothing. Take away his favorite clothing. Strip him down to uh, to basically just bare essentials. And then put him on a three strikes you're out program, which involves this. When you give him an instruction, if he does not respond appropriately to the instruction if he a ignores you b defies you in some open blatant way uh, if he only completes uh, part of the task rather than the entire task um, then he receives a strike and he goes to his room for 30 minutes okay and you set a timer to identify or, or mark the 30-minute period so that he's not at the door constantly going, Mom, can I come out? Is my time up yet? Etc. Etc. Mm-hmm. Put him in his room for 30 minutes. The second time during any given day that he uh, defies in any way, shape, or form, whether passively or actively, you call a second strike. You send him to his room the second time for one hour. Now, remember, his room is stripped down to nothing. He's got no computer in there. He's got no video games. He's got nothing to entertain himself with. He's just got to sit there for an hour and twiddle his thumbs. Uh, the third time he uh, he incurs a strike on any given day, and Jennifer, he begins every day with zero strikes. They don't okay. carry over from one day to the next. Um, you were reading my mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, these are the questions that parents ask me, so I know what they are. I know what to answer. Okay, so the third strike, he goes to his room for the remainder of the day, and he goes to bed. If he goes to his room before dinner time, he goes to his to he goes to uh, to bed immediately after dinner. Now, you may have to tweak that plan somewhat uh, based on on you know the, the particulars that operate in your family, but that's the basic plan. And you tell him that he's not going to get anything back in his room until you have seen a complete 100% turnaround in this particular problem area for a consistent one month's period of time. Um, Let me ask you at this point, am I being very, very clear with you? Are you wrapping your head around this? Absolutely. Okay. So the important thing is, you know, number one, you are not a complete failure. Number two, these problems are not unsolvable. I've given you a means of solving them. You just try and solve one problem at a time. You try and solve too many. You bite off more than you can chew, and you don't accomplish anything. Jennifer, thanks for joining the show. I hope this has been helpful to you. God bless you. This is Because I Said So with John Roseman. We'll be back. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to the show. The show is called Because I Said So. I'm your host, John Rosemond. I'm a psychologist who doesn't believe in psychology. I'm the author of about 20 books on parenting and family issues. I'm a nationally syndicated newspaper columnist and a public speaker, and now a radio talk show host. And we're up on um, that part of our show that uh, deals with uh, what the Bible tells us about parenting. The title of this particular segment of the show is Parenting by the Book, which is also the title of uh, one of my books published by Howard Books. And um, let me tell you a story. I was um, doing a workshop in Duluth, Minnesota a number of years ago, and, and the workshop was titled Parenting by the Book. And uh, in this particular workshop, seminar, whatever you want to call it, uh, which I was doing in a church in Duluth, uh, I talk about what the Bible says about child rearing. And I had taken a break, and um, most of you know that I have a reputation for being, uh, you know, fairly strict, conservative, uh, traditionalist when it comes to parenting issues. And... I'm standing at the book sales table in the lobby of the church in which I was speaking, and a fellow walks up to me, and his wife is sort of hanging back, uh, walks up to the book sales table, puts a Bible in front of me, already open to a particular page, and he says uh, to me, he says, Brother, I need to correct you. And I looked at him, and I said, Well, uh, we all need correction. Uh, there, there is no one who is above correction uh, in the Christian community. And uh, so uh, I invite you to correct me. And he, uh, he said, well, if the parents gathered here today at this seminar go home and implement the advice that you are giving, they are going to upset their children. And it says right here, and he stabbed his finger down on the Bible. He said right here it says, and he was he put his finger down on Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And he said right here it says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. And if the parents gathered here today take home your advice, they're going to upset their children. And... Uh, he, he was saying this in a very righteous kind of tone. And I looked at him, and I, I was thinking to myself, how do I respond to this? Lord, give me some guidance uh, on how to respond to this uh, with grace and, and yet, uh, you know, straightforwardly and with honesty. And um, after after mulling this over for, you know, 10 or 15 seconds, which is a long time in a conversation, by the way, uh, I finally said, well, brother, uh, I need to correct you. And he looked at me with a startled expression. He said, I'm, no, no, I'm correcting you. And I said, no, I'm not, I'm not getting into a correction contest with you, but uh, I need to point out to you that you have misquoted Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. He said, no, I haven't. That's what it says right here. Fathers do not exasperate your children. And I said, no, no, no. It says, fathers do not exasperate your children, but bring them up at the training and instruction of the Lord. And if you don't say the second half of the verse, the words that begin with the word but, you have not correctly quoted that scripture. And uh, 
it is going to be misinterpreted. You have misinterpreted it. I said the entire verse turns on the word but, which some translations have as instead. And what it means is, fathers do not exasperate your children. Pause. Instead, instead of exasperating your children, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. In other words, if you do not bring your children up according to God's parenting plan— If you do what the overwhelming majority of American parents are doing and have been doing for the last 40 to 50 years, including the overwhelming majority of parents in the Christian community, I dare say, and you bring your children up according to man's plan for child rearing as set forth in various uh, books that are oriented towards psychological theory, you will exasperate your children. Because the only parenting plan that will keep you moving in a straight line, that will keep you acting consistently and with consistent purpose, is God's plan. Uh, If you employ any other plan in the raising of God's children, you will zig and zag all over the parenting playing field, and you will never find a satisfactory sense of direction And under the circumstances, you will certainly exasperate your children and yourself to boot. So that's been our Parenting by the Book segment for this program. And now we've got a caller in Cincinnati, Ohio. Heather, thanks for joining the show. How can I help you, sweetheart? Hi, I was calling for advice on my 23-month-old son. He's started to show interest in using the potty, and he uses it one to two times a day. Um, And I know generally you seem, if I'm recalling correctly, you advise that if the child's ready, they can be potty trained fairly quickly in like a weekend. But he, this has been going on for a couple of months now. Like he started doing it once in a while, and now most days he uses the potty once or twice a day. And I just am trying to work through, should I try and encourage him more, but I don't want it to become a power struggle kind of battle. Well, you certainly don't want it to become a power struggle, but by encouraging him, uh, you're not going to make it a power struggle. Encouragement, uh, reminders, occasional reminders, you do have to be uh, conscious of the tendency to hover over the process, but uh, mere encouragement, as in, before I read you a story, the rule is that you need to use the potty, so you don't have to use the potty while I'm reading the story, so go use the potty, and then I'll read you a story. Or before we take a walk, it's the rule that you have to use the potty. And to use language like that, to just let him know that there are specific times during the day when he needs to use the potty is going to get him into the habit, Heather, and um, I don't see any problem with that whatsoever. The thing is that today's parents bring a lot of anxiety to the toilet training process. And I talk about this in one of my books, uh, Toilet Training Without Tantrums, parentheses, from either parent or child, end of parentheses. And how the problem in toilet training today is that people have attributed wrongly a lot of psychological significance to it. It really has no psychological significance to it whatsoever. 
It's no more psychologically significant than teaching a child to eat with a spoon. They are both simply self-help skills. At some point, you transition from feeding a child to teaching him to feed himself. And at some point, you transition from changing diapers to expecting the child to take care of his own toileting needs. And so if you think of it that way, if you think of it just as something that's no more significant, no more meaningful psychologically than teaching a child to eat with a spoon or teaching a child to put on his own clothes or tie his own shoes, uh, you can get through this very, very, very quickly. And, and if he's using the potty once or twice a day, and he's been doing this for quite some time now, then I think you're well on your way to having a child who's 24 months old and completely trained. Wonderful for you. It is. It's just, I, I agree. It's just, it's surprising because he's our first boy we're potty training and we thought it would take, you know, much longer. Well, boys boy. are typically a little more difficult to train than girls. And it may have something to do with differences in equipment. Um, but uh, I don't think anybody's really ever determined that for sure. That's really off the top of my head. But um, girls usually train a little bit earlier than boys and it takes a little bit uh, less time, generally speaking, but there are always exceptions to the rule, Heather. The um, One of the things that I would say to you is that if he is using the potty once or twice a day, uh, well, let me put this in the form of a question. Do you still have him wearing diapers? Yes. Okay, I would take the diapers off because the feeling of bulky fabric in the pelvic area is associated with the permission to release uh, whenever and wherever the need to release uh, occurs. And so what I would recommend that you do is put him in very thin cotton uh, underwear and uh, because that is going to be more conducive to him when he gets the urge to use the potty to instead of releasing to go use the potty independently. But as I said before, uh, encouraging him several times a day is certainly uh, appropriate, and I would encourage it. Okay. Uh, Heather, thanks for your call. Uh, we're right up against the end of the show. Um, this is, uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh says he's got the uh, quickest three hours in radio. I feel like I've got the quickest one hour in radio. I want to thank everybody, Heather and everybody else, for your calls today. I want to thank all of you out there in our listening audience for hanging in there. The show is called Because I Said So. It is the only radio show in America devoted entirely, exclusively, and in an unqualified sense to the subject of parenting, as we now call it, or child rearing. I'm your host, John Roseman. You can find out more about me by going to my website at John Rosemond. That's J-O-H-N-R-O-S-E-M-O-N-D dot com. Our producer on Because I Said So is the inimitable Rich Rosel, with assistance from Lisa Wysakowski, who is my managing agent in Buffalo, New York. Our calls were handled by Thomas Rosel, and uh, I'm John Roseman, psychologist, syndicated columnist, author, public speaker, and now radio talk show host. Thanks for listening, and be sure to join us again next weekend. Why? Because I said so. From Creative Genius Productions and American Family Radio Network.